From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm David Schultz. If you've even casually been following business news in the last few years, you may have heard that Apple, also known as the largest publicly traded company in the world, had an agreement with the government of Ireland that allowed it to avoid paying a lot of taxes. But unless you're really, really deep into the subject area, you may not know how this worked or why it worked. International tax arbitrage can be pretty confusing, that's an understatement, and apparently Apple's situation with Ireland was so confusing that it befuddled some of the highest-ranking officials in the EU. At least that's the takeaway of a recent court ruling from a case in Europe's second-highest court. In that case, the European Commission had tried to nix Apple's agreement with Ireland and said it owed a whopping 13 billion euros in back taxes. That's the equivalent of nearly 15 billion U.S. dollars. But Apple and Ireland pushed back on this and took the commission to court. And last week, the EU general court handed the tech giant and the Emerald Isle a huge victory, ruling against the commission on nearly every count. Bloomberg Tax's Isabel Gottlieb has been following this case closely, and she says the ruling was important for several reasons. First, $15 billion is a lot of money, like a lot, a lot. But secondly, it plays into the broader debate happening in countries all over the globe about the role of multinational corporations and about how and where they should be paying taxes. Isabel broke this EU court ruling down for us, but first, she explained exactly what Apple's tax arrangement with Ireland actually was. Ireland is a popular location for major multinationals to base European headquarters. Um, It's a business-friendly country. The particular tax rules that were called into question in this case basically resulted in Ireland not seeing a particular chunk of profits as taxable in Ireland. And at the same time, where Ireland saw those as uh, U.S. attributed profits, um, and at the time the U.S. was not immediately taxing those profits, they could be indefinitely uh, deferred for tax. So Apple has operations in Ireland, but the Irish tax law at the time doesn't consider those profits as profits, I guess. Uh, And the uh, U.S. tax law at the time wasn't taxing them either. And so that was the real, the issue here. Yes. And to be clear, Apple was paying, uh, it was paying tax in Ireland. It was paying some tax in Ireland. It had functions in Ireland. It had people really working there. um, And profits that would have been attributed to those functions. But the question was um, sort of the majority of um, of the worldwide profits that Apple was making. Now, we're talking about Apple, I mean, for good reason, because it's one of, if not the largest companies in the world. Why is the EU sort of uniquely interested in Apple? Why are they going after, you know, this one company and not other companies? To understand why we're talking about this, how we got here. It's helpful to back up a little bit, um, and I promise this won't be too extensive a lecture on European government, but but the European Commission is the body of the EU we're talking about here. Um, One of their powers is to enforce rules on state aid. And state aid is a concept in EU law that says basically a government can't give preferential selective treatment to one company or group of companies that others don't get. State aid, as conceived, is generally used more for things like, um, you know, Spain can't give Spanish tomato growers advantages that it's, 
it, it's more that sort of thing. Um, so the, the use of state aid applied to the tax arrangements of multinational groups is actually sort of a novel concept. Um, it's something the European Commission started uh, pretty recently, around 2013. They started using state aid as a tool to look at tax rulings. Um, and these are not illegal, they're not nefarious, they're agreements that a government makes with a big multinational company um, in which both parties agree on what the company's tax arrangements are going to be over a set period of time, um, and they both like it because they say it gives them certainty that um, the revenue authorities don't have to do a close audit um, and the company doesn't have to worry about an audit. It's kind of, we'll agree that, that your arrangement will be okay. And the European Commission at the time said, we suspect that these rulings are letting governments give a special deal to certain companies that they like um, that other companies aren't getting or don't have access to. Um, and that was kind of the driving logic of uh, this, uh, a group of, um, of investigations into some, some very well-known companies, um, Starbucks, Fiat, Amazon, Ikea, the commission has looked into um, tax arrangements of all of those. But it sounds like uh, Apple's arrangement in Ireland um, caught the most attention and Apple and Ireland pushed back on that um, and took the European Commission to court. And as you have reported recently, they won. That's right. The commission's allegation was basically that um, under the tax arrangement between Ireland and Apple, um, Apple was getting away with not paying uh, tax in Ireland on a lot of profits that should have been attributed to Ireland. Um, so this was a it was a it was a weedy tax dispute really because it was about um, kind of functions and and the value of where functions were being performed. It, it was it was weedy, but I mean one of the things that really caught my eye in your story is the dollar amount uh, that the European Commission wanted Apple to pay which was nearly $15 billion. That's an enormous amount of money. Where did they come up with that dollar amount? So the commission had looked at uh, these agreements that Ireland made with Apple, old agreements from 1991 and 2007. Um, and they looked at uh, um, a span of time between 2003 and 2014 and said over 10 years, Apple should have attributed uh, at Ireland's tax rate somewhere in the ballpark of 100 billion euros of profit to Ireland, uh, which would have roughly worked out to, to 13 billion uh, euros of tax. And, and um, I'm, that's a pretty rough estimate. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a lot of money. Certainly, it's a lot of money. Well, can you can you summarize their defense, the defense of, of Apple and Ireland, which we obviously we should say was successful? Um, yeah. You know, what did Apple uh, argue? What did Ireland argue? Was it the same defense? Yeah. So for both Apple and Ireland, the defense was simply the commission has misunderstood the way Irish tax law applies here and misunderstood the way this company does business, um, misunderstood what Apple is doing in Ireland. And the court uh, ruled quite strongly, in fact, um, and said to the commission, you've, you've done, sort of you've done your homework all wrong. Um, and you've uh, misunderstood kind of the way the law applied here. 
and misunderstood the functions the company was performing that should have uh, attracted a certain amount of profit. So let's talk, uh, finally, let's get into what's next here. Um, you know, Apple and Ireland won, the European Commission lost. Could the European Commission appeal? Yeah. So this was the general court of the EU. It's the second highest EU appeals court. Um, there's a highest level. It's like bringing something to the Supreme Court in the US, I suppose. Um, it's still possible for them to appeal, although because the court ruled largely on uh, the interpretation of facts and not on points of law, um, I've talked to a number of lawyers who have said it, it's actually going to be a tricky case for the commission to appeal. But one of the important points to bring up here is, in a way, it's really kind of yesterday's fight. Um, and, and we're still seeing this battle play out. But remember that the commission initially made a ruling uh, in the Apple case, the state aid Apple case, in 2016. Um, a lot has changed since then. Um, Irish tax law now no longer would allow this kind of uh, residency ambiguity that, that let this kind of arrangement um, take place. And perhaps more importantly, um, there's been a huge change in US tax law with the 2017 um, tax overhaul. So this type of arrangement can't exist anymore. So ultimately, I mean, wrapping things up, I guess, what are the stakes here? Um, you know, if let's say the European Commission appeals and wins, you know, I, I don't know how likely that is, but let's just presume that happens. Um, what are the stakes for taxes in the European Union and globally, I guess? Or are the stakes not really that high? Because as you mentioned, both the US and Ireland has since changed its tax laws to make this kind of thing not quite relevant anymore. Yeah. So I said, I did say this is sort of a past yeah. battle. I think yesterday's fight was, was the word you used. Yesterday's <laughs> fight. And in a very specific way, it is. Um, if we're talking about the particular mismatch of two countries' tax laws that allow tax arrangements that make the European Commission unhappy. Um, but viewed in a broader way, um, this is part of a much bigger struggle over how um, multinational companies are taxed, where they're taxed. Yeah. Uh, and it's important, I think, to view this case in the context of um, the EU's efforts to pass a digital tax, right. an EUI digital tax, which um, hasn't hasn't succeeded, but, but a, a proposal that they're very much still talking about and, and may revisit. Um, there are um, international negotiations underway, rapidly underway, actually, um, uh, meant to finish up by the end of this year um, at the OECD that would uh, address where how tech companies are taxed, perhaps more broadly, where and how much tax multinationals pay. In a broader sense, you know, I think we can view um, the Apple case as sort of an earlier salvo in a longer fight that um, that the EU has been waging um, in saying that giant multinational companies, many of which are American companies, um, are sort of not being fully accounted for in the way that global tax rules work. That was Bloomberg Taxes' Isabel Gottlieb. You can find up-to-the-minute news on the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. 
And if you have any thoughts about what you just heard, or about anything for that matter, get in touch with us on Twitter. We use the handle at tax. This episode of Talking Tax was produced by myself and Josh Block with assistance from Siri Belusu. Kathy Larson is our editor. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. The killers of Berta Caceres had every reason to believe they'd get away with murder. Her work as an environmental activist won her the admiration of celebrities in California, politicians in Washington, and the indigenous communities she worked alongside in Honduras. It also earned her powerful enemies. On a new podcast from Bloomberg Green, Blood River follows a four-year quest to find Berta Caceres's killers. Join journalist Monty Real and the team from Bloomberg Green as they untangle false leads and mishandled evidence, taking listeners deep into a sector of international development that's marked by high-level corruption and rampant violence. Blood River debuts Monday, July 27th on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen.